Well, good morning and welcome. It is good to see you here this morning. I don't know if I've told you about the mother who uh, woke her son up on Sunday morning to get ready to go to church, uh, but the mother got up and woke her son and said, it's time to get up and get ready and go to church, go to worship time. And he said, I don't want to go. And she said, well, why is that? And he said, well, uh, nobody likes me. The music is awful. Uh, and it's boring. It's just boring. And he says, yes, but honey, you've got to go. He said, why do I have to go? She said, because you're the preacher. You have to go. You know, uh, a lot of people use excuses why they don't gather in corporate worship. By the way, that was not biographical about me, you know. <laughs> My mother would not have been that kind. <laughs> But uh, one of the, I'll let you in a little secret, and so you don't get a little insight into those who serve as pastors in churches uh, and are supported vocationally to do that, and the great privilege that it is, but there are also some afflictions that come with the responsibilities, and one of those afflictions has been to listen uh, with a straight face to the reasons why people give for not going to church. You know, some of them are, well... My parents made me go when I was little and I didn't like it, or it's boring, or there's too many hypocrites in the church, or it's the only day of the week I get to sleep in at all. And uh, so you start hearing these things over time. And there was a time when I was early on in pastoral ministry that I would respond to those reasons and, uh, and to those, such, those statements, and I would, all I'd have to do is present some simple biblical arguments to deflate the excuse. But what I realized after a while was once the original excuse disappeared, three others would pop up in its place. And uh, so now I don't do that anymore. Uh, now I listen with a straight face, and uh, I go home and I pray about that person, that they will find the one sufficient reason for going to church, and that is God. And that is God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I go about my routine, my daily activities and responsibilities and great privileges, honestly. And uh, I just pray that the Holy Spirit would work in their life because ultimately it is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that make us want to worship, want to be together with other believers and worship the Lord Jesus Christ in community, in Christian community as we have here. Uh, many people do that. Actually, that's one of the primary marks of the Christian community around the world when you look at it is we gather to worship, we gather to sing songs, we gather to listen to the preaching of the word, we gather to get to know one another, to bless one another, and nobody is forced to do it. Have you ever thought about that? Other than a few kids and, and, and maybe some husbands who would rather go do something else, uh, but uh, it's, it's a voluntary act, isn't it? I hope nobody forced you to be here today, you know, that you're here by your own volition and desire. And uh, what's far more interesting than the excuses people give for not coming to a place like this, but it's far more interesting to discover why you do come. It's far more interesting to find out the reasons why you do come. Uh, you know, on the back of our bulletin, in our mission statement, uh, we use the word grace as an acronym for these five activities, grow, reach, adore, connect, equip. Adore, though, is the middle one, the glory of God in Christ Jesus in lifestyle worship. 
And it's interesting, as I've been studying this psalm today, or this week, Psalm 122, as I've gone through it again, uh, is the fact that the theme, primary theme, is worship. And I ask myself the question, do I really understand what worship is? Do I know what that word means? Obviously, we know it comes, the English word anyway, comes out of the Old English, which means giving somebody their worth. We lift up their name and who they are and their reputation, and we ascribe to them praise and glory and worth. We know that, but do we really understand what the Bible says about worship? I did a quick uh, search uh, through, through the Bible, the, the wonder of Bible software, is that uh, the word, the English word worship, at least in the New American Standard Bible, occurs 183 times in 172 verses throughout Scripture. Many, many, obviously, are in the Old Testament. But I was thinking about worship, and oftentimes, especially in our day and age, uh, we tend to think of worship as simply attendance or singing a song or singing some music. And uh, sometimes we think it's, well, if I had a good emotional feeling, it must have been really good worship that day. Or if I raised my hands in worship or listened to the sermon, uh, that that's worship. Uh, or, Or if it was good music or something, that it was really good worship. But biblical worship is really none of those things. I know that may shock you, but it is none of those things, according to Scripture. Those things might reflect a heart of worship, a worshipful attitude, but we might call it spiritual worship if one's heart is right. Wes introduced us, in fact, we call that segment when we first begin as the call to worship. And he introduced it really well this morning. And I was thinking about worship. The heart of biblical worship is more than singing songs, listening to a sermon, sitting in a chair. It's something about who we are as a people. You know, what is staggering is if we had the time, we'd go to Mark chapter 15, where Jesus has been arrested and tried, and he's being ready to be crucified. And this familiar passage in Mark 15, 17 through 20 says, the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing their knee, they worshiped him, and they had mocked him. And they put his clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Did you see what Mark called worship there? The worship was the act of bending the knee. Of course, they were mocking Jesus. They weren't worshiping him as the Messiah, as God. They were mocking him. But Mark still just chose to describe that as worship. Another one that I like, and that's not just an isolated experience, but I think of Job. If you're familiar with the book of Job, remember Job... Uh, God allows Satan to afflict Job. And so the first thing that happens is uh, his cattle, his wealth is stolen and his servants are slaughtered. And then uh, his children die when the house collapses under a big wind. And it tells us that Job put on clothes of mourning, shaved his head, and then it says he worshipped. We don't hear any angel choirs. We don't see a church gathered, but simply that Job worshipped in the midst of great adversity, great pain, more than probably we can even imagine as you read that book. In Genesis uh, 24, 26, a man, this is Abraham's servant, bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. 
Genesis 24:52. Abraham's servant heard their words. He worshiped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. Bowing one's head is an act of worship in some, in some Old Testament passages. And so typically when we pray, we bow our head, don't, don't we? So we physically we are following the pattern set in Scripture. And even it's said that there is a bowing of the knee to idols in the Old Testament, in First Kings, Isaiah, also in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and so on. And even worship is described as falling down before God or before an idol, and that's called worship in Joshua, Isaiah, Daniel, Matthew, Mark, and so on. And so you start looking at these occurrences, and actually there's 35 of those occurrences where worship is described as some act of physical bowing or lying prostrate on the ground or that type of a physical response. And we see that time and time again through the description of the word worship in the Bible. And uh, I'm not suggesting that you physically have to lay flat on the ground. You can if you want or uh, bow down or kneel. Uh, but it seems like the Bible suggests that the heart of worship is really a heart attitude. The very core of worship is a heart attitude, and it doesn't matter. It can be in times of adversity. It can be out in the field if you're working or at the school or someplace where you recognize God's presence and you are bowed within you and uh, bowing to the Lord and his word. Uh, when, I was, when we lived in Dallas, uh, we didn't go to First Baptist Church of Dallas. It was a gigantic megachurch, still is to this day. Uh, but at that time, uh, Wally Amos Criswell was the pastor. He'd been pastor there for some 50-some years. But he had kneelers installed in a Baptist church, which was unheard of. And if you're familiar with kneelers in more liturgical churches, they're on the back of the chairs, and you put them down, then you kneel during times of prayer. And so it was a physical aspect of reflecting on the Word of God that there is a heart of worship, that my heart is changed because of an encounter with God. Isaiah 45 tells us that one day every knee shall bow before the Lord and Savior. And it's echoed in Romans 14, Philippians 2. That is worship. Even at the great white throne of judgment, people will bow their knee before the Lord Jesus Christ in worship, even though they don't know him as Savior. And so that is worship. That is an interior thing that is going on. And every time we sing or raise our hands or stand or sit or kneel, it's about the heart attitude when we worship. What is our spirituality doing? Uh, what are the motions that we're going through contributing to our own personal worship? Because it occurs or should occur more uh, outside during our week and just this one hour on Sunday morning is this time for us to corporately gather. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 4, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So it goes well beyond the activities of a Sunday morning and the things we sing and the things we do, but it's reflective of a heart attitude. 
And I say all of that because worship grows from a person who bows before God, maybe physically, but primarily emotionally, spiritually. It's a heart thing, an internal thing, whether it's literal, spiritual, or both, that God desires our worship. And as Wes mentioned, he is surrounded by the seraphim who worship him perfectly because in God's throne room, it is a perfect environment, and yet he invites us frail, sinful human beings to give him glory and honor and praise because he is our creator. We worship him in that. So back to Psalm 122, if you've been with us, we've been going through the Psalms of Ascent. These are also called the Pilgrim Psalms. There's 15 of them from 120 to 134. And we were taking one per week as we go through and see these Pilgrim Songs as people would gather three times a year in ancient Israel as they were commanded by God in Exodus to come during these times as they made their way for the three annual festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and the Day of Atonement, spring, summer, and fall. And they would gather there to worship God because obviously God was the center of Israel's religious life, their spiritual life, Yahweh God, the true God, and they were surrounded by pagan nations. So this act of going up to Jerusalem to worship was a declaration to the surrounding nations too that their God, Yahweh God, was the one that was worthy of worship. And of course, uh, God had set forth Jerusalem by David's hand as the center, basically, of Israel, of their spiritual, civil, and religious life. And so they would go up there. And we've been looking at these psalms, and there is a pattern in the first four sets of threes here. Uh, verse, or psalm 120 is a psalm of distress. Remember, it's a psalm about repenting of where we're at, and we're going to turn our backs on where we're at and go forward to follow God. And these pilgrims, these spiritual seekers, these Jewish people would walk up to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was always up, and that's why they're called Psalms of Ascent, because it's up. And then last week, Psalm 121 is a psalm about trust and confidence in God's providence. Remember, he is in control of all things in all places at all times for his glory and for the good of his people. And so that is this pattern. There's distress. Then there's confidence stated in the next psalm. And today in Psalm 122, the third psalm in this series is security. It's a psalm about worship and arrival. A psalm about worship and arrival. This song is about a person who decides, volitionally makes the decision, he's going to gather with other people who believe in God and we're going to worship God. It is a sample of the complex, diverse, and worldwide phenomena of worship that is common to all Christians. It is an excellent instance of what happens when our hearts are turned to God in worship. So first of all, in verses 1 and 2, we see the first thing we see is the delight of worship, the delight of worship. Look at verse 1 again. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I like another translation where it says, let us go to the house of the Lord, and my heart leaped within me. Because the New American Standard sounds kind of passive. I was glad. Okay, that's kind of passive. But when it says, my heart leaped within me. I should have a show of hands. How many of your hearts leapt within you when you got up this morning and said, I get to go and corporately worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, some Sunday mornings are not like that, are they? And yet this is what the psalmist David is saying. We're told that the Song of Ascents by David here, David wrote four of these psalms that we know of. He could have written some of the others that are anonymous to us. But David the king 
uh, wrote this psalm. He said, my heart leaped for joy, basically, to go to the house of the Lord. And we know that uh, our worship is voluntary, as I said before. You know, nobody made you come here. Well, maybe, I hope not anybody made you come here, but you are here. And so it's a voluntary to give praise, adoration, and glory to God. It's not to be entertained. It's not to listen to good music, but it is to give glory and honor to God. And in verse 2, they've arrived. Look at the picture here. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Now, we've talked about this for the ancient Hebrew. Jerusalem was the pinpoint place of worship where God resided. At David's time, there was the tabernacle. He had the Ark of the Covenant enthroned or enshrined there. And, of course, by his son Solomon's time, they built Solomon's temple, a magnificent temple. Uh, And so we know that this is where God supposedly dwelt, okay? He was with his people. It was symbolic of God's presence with his people, his chosen people. But now, believers say, we don't need to make a long pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Some of you have been there, and you know, uh, you know it's great to go there and all that, but we don't, we're not commanded by God to make a long pilgrimage to go someplace. Uh, we can worship God wherever we're at, whether it's in the farm field, the school, the church building, wherever we are, wherever you find yourself, in your home, in your neighborhood, you can worship God because it is that hard attitude. Acts chapter 7, I think it was Peter said that God does not dwell in man-made buildings. That's why this is not a temple, this is not a tabernacle, this is a church building, but it's a building. You are the church. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are the church. You make up what is the church. And so there is the delight of worship. The key to this whole thing is the heart, and David knows that in this psalm. And believers who want to please God have a heart to worship him. We don't just come for an hour on Sunday morning to forget all about God and go about our week as if he's not even in existence. So when we hear the psalmist say, let's go to the house of the Lord, my heart leaps for joy, we're not listening here to phony enthusiasm. It is a well-known fact that David loved to worship with his brothers and sisters of Israel to the wonderful God. And it's not propaganda, but he truly loved going and worshiping. And so that is the common background to why we call ourselves Christians, why we meet together in places like this and gather and sing and listen to the word of God. So the delight of worship. And in verses three through five, there is a framework for worship, a framework for worship. And there's three things that we will notice here, one out of each verse, three, four, and five. There is worship gives us a workable structure for life. Secondly, in verse four, worship nurtures our need to be in relationship with God. And thirdly, verse five, worship that keeps us centered on the singular acts of God. We need to be reminded, oftentimes because I need reminding of the truth of God's word, I find that much of preaching and teaching is reminding you of what you already know, but you may have forgotten. And so we go back to the word and we look at it and look at it. That's what is fantastic about this piece of literature, the Bible. Because any other piece of literature, you know, whether it be Moby Dick or some classics, Iliad and the Odyssey, we can exhaust those things. We can read through them, study them, memorize them, know them, And they're exhausted. I mean, we don't have to read them again once we do that. But the Bible, you keep going back and you can spend a lifetime. Well, you will spend a lifetime because it is a divine book. There is an infinite being behind it who has authored this book. 
And so it is always good to go back and remember what God has done. Verse 3 says, Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together. What in the world does that mean? Okay. Well, remember, David is looking out across Jerusalem and all the stones and all the beauty of the architecture. It's a metaphor for an architectural metaphor. And he's using Jerusalem. And he's talking about the foundational realities. He's saying it's compact. It's a unit. It is unified as a city. But more important than that, not only is it an architectural metaphor, it is a metaphor that is true socially, true socially. Basically, he says in the beginning of verse 4, he says that to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord. Remember, there were 12 tribes in Israel, and they were fiercely loyal to their tribal unit. Even though they were Jewish and they were related to other Jewish people of other tribes, they were fiercely loyal. And so Jerusalem is about right in the middle. It's at uh, the corner of uh, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And then there are the northern ten tribes. Remember, later, after Solomon's time, they divided. They had a civil war, and the northern ten tribes left and abandoned and started their own worship system. But the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, remained at Jerusalem. And so he's saying that all these tribes, even though all their differences and fierce loyalties, they come together. And for us, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are a diverse bunch. Even though we look a lot alike in some respects, we are diverse. We have different backgrounds, different experiences, different skills, all sorts of things, different likes and dislikes and preferences, and yet we come together, and that's why the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians that the Holy Spirit gives us the unity, and we are to be diligent to maintain the unity that the Holy Spirit gives us. Because when you think of the Holy Spirit indwelling every believer in Jesus Christ, he will not be divided. So when there is division, when there is rancor and disagreement, it tells me that people are sinning because they're not maintaining the unity of the Holy Spirit. So we need to remember those foundational realities. God created you. God, through Jesus Christ, redeemed you, and God provides for you. Foundational realities. This phrase, give thanks to the name of the Lord, is ascribing glory to another where they're commanded. Worship uh, nurtures our need to be in relationship with God. Notice that in the end of verse 4, it's an ordinance for Israel. It's a command to give thanks in the name of the Lord. Augustine wrote that, uh, said that a Christian should be alleluia from head to foot. In other words, everything we are, everything we do, praise God for it. Because the very next breath of your lungs, the next beat of your heart is simply by his sustaining hand. But very often we don't feel like it, do we? Like uh, the guy who didn't want to get up and go preach. Often we don't feel like gathering to others. And so we give these reasons. We say it would be dishonest for me to go to a place of worship and praise God when I don't feel like it. That would be hypocritical. The psalm says here, I don't care whether you feel like it or not. This was decreed to give thanks in the name of the Lord. Do you notice that? He tells us whether you feel like giving thanks or not, you are commanded to give thanks to the Lord. That's what an ordinance is. I have put great emphasis on the fact that Christians worship because they want to, not because they are forced to. Uh, But I've never said we worship because we feel like it. You know, we live in a day and age where feelings reign supreme in almost everything that happens on the social media and in life itself. But really, feelings are great liars. 
Have you ever thought about emotions can be great liars in your life? They are. If we Christians only worshipped when we felt like it, there would be precious little worship going on, wouldn't there? We just wouldn't, probably wouldn't do it. Feelings are important in many areas. Emotions are God-given, but completely unreliable in matters of faith. In fact, one writer, his name is Paul Shearer, he writes these words, the Bible wastes very little time on the way we feel. The Bible wastes very little time on the way we feel because feelings should not drive our decisions. We live in what another writer said is we live in an age of sensation. We think that if we feel something, there can be no authenticity in doing it. Uh, But the wisdom of God says something different, that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. I think the best way to describe that is the fact, you know, Campus Crusade, now crew, they had a simple illustration, which kind of is old now, about uh, facts, faith, and feeling. They used a, a train, and the engine of the train were the facts that was pulling the train, uh, the, and the faith was like the coal car. See, it's old. They don't have coal cars anymore. The fuel for the engine, the faith, and feelings were the caboose. We don't have cabooses anymore. That one fell just flat. For for you young people, you don't even know what those things are anymore. But anyway, so the the idea is is that our feelings should not drive the decisions we make. Uh, Worship is an act that develops feelings for God. It's not feelings for God that expressed in an act of worship. We command the, the, the command, we comm- when we obey the command to praise God and worship, our deep essential need to be relationship with God is nurtured. And that's why we spend time in the Word of God and then respond to that. And it should touch our emotions. It should touch where we're at. But our emotions do not drive what we believe the truth to be. And then thirdly, worship is what keeps us centered on the singular acts of God. Look at verse 5 with me. For the thrones were set for judgment, the thrones for the house of David, of the house of David. Now, when we think of judgment, we always think negatively, don't we? But this is a biblical definition of judgment here. And these judgments and these thrones were set up uh, for David to follow what God wants his people to do. And here's the biblical definition of judgment. It's a decisive word by which God straightens everything out and puts things right. It's a decisive word by God, straightening things out and putting things right. Judgment is not a word about things, but it is a word that does things, putting love in motion, applying mercy, nullifying wrong, ordering goodness. And I hang a lot of truth on that whole fact that God is righteous and he is just and he will make all things right. I don't know how that's going to work. For those of you who have broken relationships, for those of you who have been Uh, harmed in some way, God is going to make that all right because he is a God of justice. And here is when we worship him, we pray and we know and we claim the fact that there are thrones of judgment. God ultimately is the judge. He ultimately will judge rightly. He will make a decision that straightens all things out and makes things right and sets things right. That is an amazing concept with as much pain as there is in the world and in our own individual lives that God is going to make it right. He will not waste any tears on that. The word of God is everywhere in worship. 
That's what drives our worship is the reflection upon how God has revealed himself and what he does. We are here about God's word to us and our call to worship as we did this morning. And the benediction at the end, it's God's last word to us. In the scripture lessons we hear, God is speaking to us. In the sermon we hear, it's re-expressed to us. The hymns we sing or the songs we sing are paraphrases of Scripture to a greater or lesser degree. And every time we worship, our minds are informed, our memories refreshed, our judgments of God are familiarized in what God says and decided, and he's working that out in our salvation. There's simply no other place that works out except in worship as we reflect and respond to God's word, whether it's corporately together or in our own Bible study, in our own Bible reading, or in our small groups, wherever we are. You know, there's a growing movement today of people who just stay home. They don't, you know, they've been hurt by the church, and there's probably a lot of legitimacy to some of that, but uh, they've made the decision to stay home, and they'll just, be, they'll just worship at home. But what they miss out on is uh, they miss out on the fact that they are sharpened by being with other people, they are corrected and sharpened by that. Uh, we're going to miss a lot because our reading will unconsciously be influenced by our culture, limited by our ignorance, distorted by unnoticed prejudices. And whereas when we're in the large congregation, as these Jewish people gathered in Jerusalem, they were refreshed as they heard the word of God anew and had worshiped God so they could go back out to their villages and their farms and their little towns, and they would wait till the next time they went up to Jerusalem. And for us, we don't have to wait just three times a year. We can get together with other believers daily if we so design it. And we get together once a week to get refreshed and recharged for what God is doing, so a framework for worship. And finally, verses 6 through 9, uh, the peace and security of worship. I think uh, these verses have been pulled out of context quite a bit, uh, but the Scriptures are teaching us here that God is sovereign in this, and he calls us to be a people of prayer. And for the ancient Israelites and David, he says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May, the prosper, may they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. Prayer for peace and prosperity. Peace, of course, is that Hebrew word shalom. And shalom is difficult to define. It's like trying to describe you, if we just look at that word, it's like trying to describe you simply from your social security number. It's, it's, it's more than just words on a page or letters on a page. Shalom is, you know, the peace of God. It's a whole lifestyle. And then he talks about security and prosperity. And this is not necessarily financial or physical prosperity. Worship uh, that satisfies our hunger for God. And it tells us he will seek our good. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Of course, David is speaking of the larger context of Israel gathered in Jerusalem for the, the, the temple there and for worship. But for believers in Jesus Christ, in the church age in which we live, we can worship anywhere. And we are called, and he will seek our good. Uh, we need to engage in that worship and have it deepened for us. Uh, worship does not satisfy our hunger for God. It whets our appetite. Have you ever thought of that? It's not, if you go out of here and you're satisfied in your hunger for God, uh, you're missing the point because engaging in the word of God, singing praises to her name should simply whet your appetite for more. It should deepen it. 
It overflows the hour and permeates the week, hopefully, as you think about what God has done. Our everyday needs are changed when we worship. We are no longer living from hand to mouth and greedily scrambling through the human rat race to make the best we can out of this mean existence in which we live. Our basic needs suddenly become worthy of dignity and creatures made in the image of God, as the Bible tells us. Peace and security. And those sound like the word Jerusalem, a place of worship. And shalom, as I said, is one of the richest words in the Bible. You can no more define it uh, than by looking up the meaning in the dictionary, but it has much bigger wholeness that result from God being completed in us and through us in his work that is eternal and everlasting. We are part of something bigger than ourselves individually and corporately as a church family. And that prosperity is not big bank accounts or stockpiles of weapons. It means leisure. Isn't that interesting that prosperity here in the Hebrew sense means leisure. It's a relaxed stance of one who knows that everything is right because God is over this. God is God and nobody else. And he is with us and he is for us in Jesus Christ. It is speaking of the security of being at home in a history that has a cross in its center. The cross is the hinge point of all of history. It's the leisure of a person who knows that every moment of our existence is at the disposal of God and lived under the mercy of God. Worship is extended through our days and our lives, and we are constantly growing in it if we are making the volitional decision that, yes, I want to know more about God. I want to worship him in spirit and in truth. As I pray, I'll have the men come up, and we will partake of the Lord's table this morning. This is a response to what God is doing for us. It's a response of worship as we partake. And this is called an ordinance, or the church is commanded. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we find the central passage to our instructions for how to partake of the Lord's table. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, the psalmist David in Psalm 122. Thank you for leading us through that. And pray, Lord, that as we reflect upon your words that we'd recognize that no matter if we're in distress in this life, in despair in some manner or form, that you know all about those things, and that uh, we just need to keep our eyes fixed upon you and walk with you and be confident that you are who you say you are and then come to this point of security and peace no matter what our external circumstances may be. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The central passage the Apostle Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 And he says that I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. And in the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. Remember, Jesus and his disciples in the night he was betrayed were observing Passover, the Passover meal. And they were in that upper room. And Jesus, since he was the fulfillment of the longing of the Passover observance, for centuries Israel had been observing Passover every year longing for the Messiah to come. And Jesus knew he was the fulfillment of that longing. He was the one who came to die for the sins of the world. And so he took those elements from that Passover meal and he fulfilled them and changed them. And he taught the disciples that the Lord's table, and he commands us to partake of that. And it says that when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And so he took the bread first, and of course they had a loaf of bread, flat bread, unleavened bread, and he would break it and they would distribute it among themselves. And he was giving new meaning to these very common elements of the bread and the cup. And we celebrate it, we observe it as a looking back as a memorial time to help us remember. Because he says, do these things in remembrance of me. And I'm always challenged by those words because what do I remember? Of course, I remember my personal testimony of how God rescued me. Uh, But you all have memories of what Jesus has done and not only what he has done, but what he is doing and what he will do. That is, he is in the right hand of the Father preparing a place in heaven for us. And so this morning we are going to participate together. And these, this observance is for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've believed in him for everlasting life, you are welcome to partake. Uh, if you have never done that, I would challenge you to think about your own eternal well-being and to recognize the words of Jesus as he said, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that if you believe in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. And to know that you can have the security and peace in the midst of a turbulent world for the future of your life. So I'm going to ask Bill Carell to give thanks for the bread this morning. 